0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 rrfm FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Hong Kong based lawyer and author Anthony Dapperin joined me to discuss the latest developments in Hong Kong politics, including Beijing's overhaul of Hong Kong's electoral system, as well as the jailing of pro democracy activists. We explore how Hong Kong's national security laws have affected society and culture. Then, Dr. Monica Bell, Associate Professor of Law and Sociology at Yale University joined me to discuss the murder of George Floyd and the Derek Chauvin trial. We explore pervasive police violence against black and brown Americans and the push for police reform and racial justice in the United States. Then, finally... Ewan Mann and conservation ecologist Dr Jack Pascoe joined me to discuss his connection to country, in particular Bangorak country, also known as Cape Otway. This is the subject of Jack's essay, which has been published in the book Animals Make Us Human. We get to chat about a whole range of topics relating to politics on this show. And one of the areas which I've been absolutely fortunate to cover, and it is such a significant part of our region and our neighbourhood where we live, is Hong Kong. And Anthony Dapperin has been so generous with his time many times before to sit down and have a chat with us to really explore the depth and complexities of these political issues in Hong Kong, which are now really social issues, things that people are confronting on a daily basis. So I welcome back onto the program Anthony Daprin, who is also the author of a number of books, but his latest book is called City on Fire. Hi there, Anthony, and thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Since we last spoke, which was right before Chinese New Year, I think it was, a lot has happened. And I've certainly been following what's been happening, but there seems to have been a kind of cascading of events uh, since that point. It would be perhaps pertinent to talk about The significant event that happens in mainland China where the Chinese Communist Party get together to come up with party policy and then to enact those policies into law, And some of these policies are very much policies that will affect Hong Kong. So I wondered whether, given the the recent Congress in China, could we have a quick chat about some of the key policy areas um, that directly affect Hong Kong that have come out of that recent Congress in China?
1: Yeah, certainly. And and just by way of background, this is the the, the National People's Congress, China's parliament that that meets um, for its formal session once a year in March. And I guess if you want to think of an analogy, you could think of it as sort of China's federal parliament. And then uh, the Legislative Council here in Hong Kong is something akin to the sort of the state parliament. So we have our own legislature here in Hong Kong that's supposed to make the laws for Hong Kong. And under the One Country, Two Systems agreement under which Hong Kong was returned to China, the only things that Beijing's National People's Congress should be making laws about for Hong Kong are matters of defence, foreign affairs and, and and things outside Hong Kong's autonomy. But other than that, they shouldn't be interfering in Hong Kong. Now, last year this is the body that introduced that notorious national security law that we, that we've been talking about and that that, uh, that in itself was a was a big surprise because people thought that that this is not the kind of thing that that the National People's Congress should have the power to do or should be doing for Hong Kong and I suppose people at the time thought that it was sort of a sort of a one-off and uh, and and something like that wouldn't happen again but um uh, this year there was again something of a surprise and and the National People's Congress stepped in again. Um, in relation to Hong Kong, and in March, they announced um, a, a massive overhaul of the Hong Kong electoral system, um, the, the system by which Hong Kong chooses both the chief executive, the head of the government here, uh, and elects its, its legislative council, which was always, at best, only semi-democratic, and now will be even less democratic after these reforms.
0: What exactly are the changes in the sense of how things currently operate and what they'll mean moving forward electorally in practice in Hong Kong?
1: So for Hong Kong's uh, legislature, the Legislative Council, previously it was sort of half-democratic. Um, so there were 70 seats and, and 35 of those were chosen by uh, by what we call geographical constituencies, which are the same thing as sort of seats for the lower house that, would, that we would have uh, in, in elections in Australia. So people vote for their local member. Um, there were another five seats that were sort of representatives of, of the district councils, of local councils, and again, everyone in Hong Kong had the right to, to vote for those five members who represented the various local councils. And then the other three of the, sorry, the other 30 of the 70 were what's called functional constituencies. And functional constituencies um, are various special interest groups, effectively. So every different industry um, and various uh, professions and various other special interest groups would have seats dedicated to them, and only people from those special interest groups would be able allowed. allowed to vote. And because these tended to be business groups or professions or sort of local uh, organisations that tended to be very pro-Beijing or sort of pro-government, that was the means by which the government effectively managed to keep control of the legislature. Now, even that sort of only semi-democratic system wasn't enough for Beijing. And and I think part of what scared them was that in 2019, sort of at the height of the protests um, in that year, we had district council elections uh, here. The government, I think, was Expecting there'd be some kind of silent majority that would stand up um, and, and would apparently have been you know, sick of the protests and would vote strongly in favour of the government, but it didn't work out that way. Um, in fact, the exact opposite happened, and there was a landslide victory for all of the, the pro-democracy candidates who won pretty much um, who won control of every single council and won pretty much every seat. And I think that really frightened Beijing, so they've decided to completely gut the electoral system here. So for the Legislative Council now, there there will be 90 seats rather than 70 seats, but only 20 out of the 90 seats will be chosen by popular vote by those geographical constituencies. And then there will be 30 of the 90 seats going to those functional constituencies. And then 40 of the 90 seats will be going to a group that's called the election committee that is effectively a group of Beijing... Friendly um, or Beijing-appointed officials. So uh, f- effectively, the, Beijing is stepping in and saying, at least forty of the ninety seats in your in your parliament will now be effectively appointed by us. And there's a very heavy weighting that will ensure that most of the other seats will end up going to other pro-Beijing parties. On top of that, they've introduced a new screening system. So before anyone can run for an election now, they have to get past what's called the, uh, the, 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 the nomination committee. After they get past the nomination committee, they also have to go through a special national security screening by the uh, national security agencies here to ensure that, um, as the government's been putting it, only patriots rule Hong Kong. The suspicion is that anyone basically who's been involved in any kind of protest activity or dissent or any kind of pro-democracy activism will be screened out due to their alleged risk to national security. Um, and so, so it really is just basically an, an overhaul of the complete electoral system to mean that there will effectively exclude the pro-democracy parties and activists from participating, really, in, in in politics again.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like a very comprehensive, sweeping change to the electoral system. Mm. I wonder, given that you said Beijing's role is really to make laws relating to defence and foreign affairs, number one, are they technically able to make these types of changes in a legal sense? And number two, were they even under threat of losing power or control under the previous
1: system? As to your first question, technically they can do it because they have the power to amend the basic law, which is Hong Kong's constitution. So they are doing this through an amendment to the basic law. Um, they are not necessarily following the, the procedure that, that should be undertaken for that, which is to have Hong Kong's own legislature vote on that. But at uh, any event, I think the, the reality is that, that Beijing has the power to do whatever they want in Hong Kong. And so the technicalities, I think, are not much of a, an issue for them. So that's uh, you know, there's not going to be any, any challenge to their decision, I think. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten the second question. was yeah. Oh, the second
0: question was, were they even under any threat of losing power or influence in the Legislative Council as it was previously
1: formulated? Well, they were was, there, there was certainly afraid of that. Um, and I think the District Council election result was really a big shock to them. Uh, and just by way of background, traditionally, the, the District Councils have all been pro-Beijing controlled. The pro-Beijing, pro-government parties have traditionally done very well in those elections. So that that landslide victory to the Democrats... It was a big wake-up call to Beijing, and I think they were afraid that there was a risk that they might end up losing their majority lock control on, on the legislature. And I think that's part of what what prompted these um these reforms is to really make sure that that wouldn't happen.
0: This is just one very significant example of changes that we've seen made, and we have seen the national security laws passed as well, and that's something we looked at in great depth previously. And obviously, at the time, we were still somewhat unsure last year as to how this would affect the everyday life of Hong Kongers, not just in their freedom of political speech and activities, but also around how their day-to-day life might be and just how far and wide these laws would be used in terms of cracking down on culture or trying to steer certain cultural discussions in a a way. And I have seen just recently there was an article around a first National Security Education Day, Mm. which was imposed by the national security law and was really focused on Hong Kong children at school promoting that law and, I guess, the cultural norms or expectations of citizens in relation to that law. I wonder if you could share with us whether it's that example or other examples of where you think the national security law has started to make itself felt
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, And this is all with the background that when the national security law was first introduced, the government tried to reassure everyone that this would only affect a very small minority of extremists and and no one else would would have anything to worry about from this law. But But it clearly is. A, a sweeping change to, to Hong Kong society as a whole, and I think an attempt by Beijing to try and remake Hong Kong society. Um, and so that example that you cited um, of National Security Education Day is a really um, uh, important one. One of the most notable things about the protests in 2019 is that they were very much led by Hong Kong's youth. Um, this wasn't sort of the uh, the old guard, sort of pro-democracy people who'd sort of been activists since the the pre-Handover days. Um, there were, these were university students, uh, people in their 20s, um, and, and even high school students. And there were many notable protests, actually, outside high schools, where um, the, the kids before school would, would link hands in these uh, so-called human chains and, and, and stand outside the school gates, linking um, one school to the next, sort of through the neighbourhoods. Very moving sites, actually, to see these young people so, um, so invested in the future of their city and caring really passionately about these kind of issues. Um, uh, And and, you know, you'd think in a way any government would love to have a a youth that was so passionate and so engaged. Um, But China didn't see that this way that way. They they, they saw this as a as a threat. Um, And they were clearly worried that they were losing Hong Kong's youth um, and and that that the city was going to be a city um, with a whole generation of, of, of rebels, as Beijing saw it. And so this National Security Education Day um, is, I think, the part of an ongoing attempt to overhaul the education system in Hong Kong um, and introduce significant uh, sort of pro- pro-China, pro-Beijing, patriotic content. And so there were a whole series of activities around this day a couple of weeks ago to educate Hong Kong's youth about China, about the importance of national security, about the importance of the the police keeping everyone safe. All sorts of messages designed to change the narrative around both the protests of 2019 and around the idea of what it means to be a Hong Konger in the context of, of, of China as a whole. So that's one I think really important and ongoing cultural change as as changes are also made to to school curriculums and, and and things like um you know protest slogans and singing protest songs are banned in schools and talking about politics is banned in schools and all these sorts of things to overhaul the education system. The arts has been another, perhaps not-so-surprising target. We have a, a, a very large new art museum being built here called um, M Plus, which are, people are very much looking forward to as potentially being a, a game-changer, putting a world-class, very large arts institution. It's going to be the size of of the Tate Modern in London, including all its various annexes. Um, so a very large facility with a, uh, the, the foundation of it being a, a donation of some of the most influential contemporary Chinese art from the last 30 years. And so people were were fairly excited about this sort of edgy contemporary Chinese art that couldn't be shown in the mainland, um, now having a home in this new world-class museum in Hong Kong. Well, uh, surprise, surprise, that uh, institution um, had came under criticism by some pro-Beijing politicians who singled out some artwork by the artist Ai Weiwei, who I'm sure uh, all of you have heard of, a famous dissident artist. Um, uh, a number of his works are uh, in the collection that, that M Plus will will be holding. And these pro-Beijing parties sort of called out these works and sort of said these are unpatriotic works. These are works that potentially breach the national security law. You know, will M plus agree that they're not going to display these works? And this is really a a great shock to, I'm I'm sure, the the administrators of the museum as well as to the art sector as a whole here, because people had relied upon the government's assurances that things like freedom of expression, freedom of speech wouldn't be affected by the national security law. And we would never have expected that suddenly art galleries would be told the kind of art they can and can't display in Hong Kong. But um, it, this did seem to be the, the message that was coming out from these pro-Beijing politicians. So that that hasn't sort of reached the end of the discussion and we'll see where that ends up. But it was another indication of, of the kind of changes that Beijing is seeking to make to Hong Kong and to Hong Kong's previously very much um, free society in terms of things like expression and speech and those sorts of things. That is
0: really concerning. And obviously, Ai Weiwei has a long history with the Chinese mainland government and Communist Party. So yeah, it would be certainly interesting to see how that pans out. Um, One of the other elements to this, which has been perhaps slightly more in the news, making global headlines, has been around these kind of mass arrests of a number of activists and people engaged in the electoral system in different ways. And we did see an arrest of about 55 people (laughs) who were associated with some electoral primaries, that uh, were being held and they were broadly pro-democratic type of people. And we have seen a number of others arrested for different so-called offences under the national security laws. And we've now seen, as time has gone on, these people get to court, have their day in court, and then um, in some cases be found guilty for the charge that they've received. So I wondered whether you could talk us through some of the most significant Figures who have been arrested. I did note that they spanned a wide range of ages, people including Martin Lee, who's aged 82, Jimmy Lai is aged 73. So there have been some quite prominent and older Hong Kongers who are very well known, prominent figures in society who've also been arrested and received guilty charges and sentences for jail.
1: Yeah, and I should just add, that's sort of part of, it's been a real feature of of the last year or so since the protests have ended and I think will be a feature of Hong Kong going forward for, for, for at least several years to come and that is this constant parade of arrests and trials um, and I think it's part of the tactic of the authorities to continually harass the opposition and activists and dissidents by continually arresting them on various charges and putting them through the legal system again and again and again. So someone like, like Jimmy Lai who's a, a a a, a pro-democracy media um, magnate. He owns um, the largest pro-democracy newspaper here, the Apple Daily. He has been charged with numerous charges under the national security law, um, in addition under the the public order ordinance, which is the laws that govern protest. Um, He has already been found guilty and sentenced on some charges. He's also awaiting trial on numerous other charges he's going to be tied up in the legal system, I think, for, for many years to come and, and remanded in custody as those as those trials work their way through. And this is what a classic, what I call a lawfare approach that the government is using just to really tie up the opposition in these court cases. But a couple of the really notable ones, uh, the, the first was the one that involved um, a, a handful of really the most senior elder sort of statesmen of the Hong Kong democracy movement, including, as you said, Martin Lee in, in his 80s, a senior barrister. QC um, who founded the Hong Kong Democratic Party. He's been an activist for, for decades here, and indeed, I remember back in the in the early 90s when the the handover was looming. Um, Martin Lee regularly making trips to Australia and, and speaking in Australia, uh, encouraging people to continue to pay attention to Hong Kong and to to ensure that Hong Kong didn't lose its rights and freedoms. And I remember hearing him speak I, I, in Melbourne, uh, you know, some 30 years ago, and and, and he's been really active all the way through till now, and it's quite sad to see some of the things that he was afraid of then now coming to pass. Um, so along with Martin, there was Margaret Ng, another senior barrister, Albert Ho, another former chairman of the Democratic Party, all these people in their, in their 60s and 70s, um, Jimmy Lai as well, and a number of other activists. Now, they were all charged. In relation to a protest, uh, One of just one of the many protests that occurred in 2019, this particular protest happened in, in August. It was a very, large protest. Organisers said that over a million people took part in this one. Um, certainly it was at least in the hundreds of thousands. This particular protest, the police had authorised a rally in a park but had not had said that a march would not be allowed. But because there were hundreds of thousands of people turned out, it physically wasn't possible for them all to fit into the park. And so these, uh, these uh, activist leaders decided to lead the protesters out of the park in a march which the police declared illegal. And so Fast forward to a few weeks ago, um, these people were were charged as being the the leaders of an unauthorized march, um, and were found guilty. And some of them were sentenced to jail. One of them, a long hair Quaker, very prominent protester activist, was sentenced to eighteen months jail in relation to organizing this protest. Others were sentenced um, for various amounts. Uh, thankfully, the older defendants, so Martin, uh, Margaret and Albert, were given suspended sentences. So they were found guilty. They were given jail sentences, but then they weren't remanded in jail. They were given suspended sentences and released, which was, uh, I guess, one small blessing. But but the r- reality is we have all these people found guilty and given jail sentences of 12 months to 18 months for for, for really participating in a, in a protest that hundreds of thousands of other people also took part in. And so a very odd outcome. Uh, The the other really notable trial has been the one of the pro-democracy politicians who took part in the primary that you also referred to. And so this was last July when there were supposed to be elections held last year in September. These were ultimately cancelled due to the the pandemic, the government said. But I think we all suspect the real reason was because they were afraid they were going to lose it. But in preparation for that, the various pro-democracy parties decided to coordinate their efforts, And so rather than competing against one another, um, they held a primary election where uh, all the various pro-democracy aspiring candidates would run. Anyone from the community was welcome to cast a ballot um, to decide which candidates they wanted to run. And then the idea would be that the people that got the most votes would then nominate themselves for the election. As part of this plan, uh, a number of the candidates also said that if they were successfully elected, they would aim to win a majority in the Legislative Council. And if they did, that they would exercise their powers under the Basic Law to try and veto the government's budget bills, and there's a mechanism under the Basic Law by which if the, if the Legco vetoes the budget bills, then they can force the chief executive to resign and can force a, effectively force a change of government. So all entirely legal, all within the the processes set out in the in the Basic Law, but this plan really infuriated Beijing, um, and I think they also saw it as an opportunity to score another hit against the pro-democracy movement. And so what the authorities here said was that that plan to veto the budget and force the government to resign was effectively a subversive plan, a plan to subvert state power, and therefore that the entire primary election itself was a plot to subvert state power. And as a result, they charged every single candidate who ran in that primary election under the national security law for subversion. And that was ended up with, as you say, some 55 people being arrested purely for having organised and and attempted to win an election, effectively. Um, So, 47 of those had committal hearings, um, formally arrested and had committal hearings um, uh, earlier in the year. A really remarkable hearing then took place where you had 47 defendants in the one court sort of hearing their, their bail applications and and the trials went sort of late into the night, day after day. We had defendants sort of passing out because they didn't have sufficient food and water. Uh, it was really a, 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 an awful sight, a sort of week-long trial. And at the end of that, most of those uh, defendants, almost 40 of them, have been remanded in custody. Now, they haven't been formally found guilty yet. They awaiting formal trial, but um, the national security law says that um, unless, unless the court is comfortable that you're not going to uh, continue to threaten national security, they are required to deny bail. And so most of those defendants have been denied bail, and they're going to be sitting in jail now, formally awaiting a trial that will take place, supposedly, sometime later this year. But, but what if the, the, the effective result of this whole process is that the entire opposition party, effectively, every candidate who was planning to run in that election under the pro-democracy banner has now been arrested and most of them are sitting in jail awaiting trial. So setting aside all all the various electoral reforms that have been undertaken, there is effectively no one left from the Democratic side to to run in the elections because they've all been arrested.
0: Yes. Well, it's a pretty um, tough call to then try and recruit people to do that. (laughs) Exactly. Given what the obvious repercussions are, yeah. one of the other, I guess, critical features of any democracy, at least, is a free press and mm. free journalism. And you just mentioned there, of course, Jimmy liar being the founder of the Apple Daily has been caught up in this. There's also been other journalists caught up. I did note that an award-winning journalist, Bao Choi, has also been arrested and tried and now found guilty of a crime for using a public database to to expose police failings in Hong Kong and apparently is the first time a member of the media has faced prosecution in Hong Kong for the act of reporting. It seems that the actual offence of looking through a public database of car registrations is what has led to that.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, Bao Choi was a, a producer at RTHK, which is sort of Hong Kong's equivalent of the ABC. It's the government broadcaster. And she was working on a, a documentary about the Long attacks. Now, just to remind listeners, during the protests of 2019 out in a, a suburb of Hong Kong called Long, there was an incident where a, a number of uh, effectively pro- government pro-Beijing, triad-linked gang members attacked protesters as they were coming home from the protests one night in in July. Um, A very violent attack unarmed protesters and sort of innocent civilians being beaten with bamboo canes and, and rods and clubs and things by this sort of pro-Beijing mob. And the government has really never fully given an accounting of that incident. There have been very few arrests in connection with it, no convictions yet. And so it's it, it's very much an incident that weighs very heavily, I think, on, on, on people in Hong Kong and something the government's never accounted for. So she was working on a documentary about that incident. And one of the things she was trying to do was to connect the cars, the vehicles that had transported um, the gang members to that protest with their owners to try and figure out perhaps who was behind these attacks. So classic investigative journalism. And she was accessing a, a public database of, of car registration plates to do that. Um, now, previously, this was completely legal. And indeed, there was a, a box on the form that allowed the media to tick to, to if they were sort of to, under the sort of the, the question, what purpose are you making this request for? And they could tick uh, media. Now, the government changed the form, took media off the form and left a category that said other, but also said that you should only access this database for, for traffic-related purposes. So Bao Choi ticked the other box, um, made her application, obtained the information and used that to great effect in her documentary. Um, but then what the government effectively did was to come back and say that she had made a false statement by, by ticking this other box when she was actually using it for, for media purposes and media purposes is is not one of the permitted purposes for accessing this database. So, again, this sort of lawfare using the legal system to harass people that the government um, is unhappy with. Um, and I think the fact that she was making this documentary about the, the Long attacks and is something that the government didn't want to be further exposed in public led to them prosecuting her um, and finding her guilty. Um, thankfully, she received only a, a 6,000 Hong Kong dollar fine. So, that's what the equivalent of about a thousand Australian dollar fine. Um, and wasn't put into jail, but um, it's a a real, um, sort of sends a real chill through the entire journalistic community here. Um, Firstly, no one's going to be accessing that database again um, for journalistic purposes. Um, And second, I think everyone's going to be very carefully watching their step whenever they're carrying out these sorts of investigative reporting in the future um, to to make sure they very scrupulously um, toe the line and and, and don't uh, inadvertently break any laws, because I think it looks like the government's going to um, really be... Scrutinising the media sector very closely.
0: Absolutely. I'm talking with Anthony Dapperin, who's an author and lawyer based in Hong Kong, and we're talking about the political situation in Hong Kong at the moment. Anthony, do you think having talked about so many of these areas of crackdown, suppression, threats and suspicion around people who may do seemingly innocuous things and perhaps not even think that it could be caught up in these types of national security laws. Has this led to a societal change in the way that people, Hong Kongers, interact with each other on a daily basis? Has it led to any sense that people don't feel free to express themselves even with people that they
1: trust? Uh, Yes, absolutely. There's been a a chill that you can feel uh, sort of coming down around uh, around society. Uh, And there's sort of two particular ways that you notice that. The the first one is that people are learning, perhaps in the way that people under totalitarian, authoritarian regimes all around the world learn, um, to speak in code. Ah, uh, people no longer talk about these things directly for fear that it, it's going to lead to trouble for them and the people that they, they they're talking with. And so they sort of learn to to speak in code, to refer to things obliquely, to to sort of talk around these kind of topics. Um, and whenever you um are talking with someone that you don't know very well, there's a certain amount of of tiptoeing and and talking in code before you sort of establish where the other person stands politically. And so just this idea that people no longer feel that they're able to speak freely is very much the case now, and everyone is sort of learning to to tiptoe around these issues. And I think the second thing is that it is leading to this sort of, very quickly leading to this sort of low-trust society where people have this sense that, well, you don't know who you can trust, you're not sure who where people stand. The, the, the police launched a, a national security um reporting hotline where you can phone up and, and snitch on people or you can report suspected breaches of the national security law. And that, that's the kind of thing that really undermines societal trust and, and gets people to begin sort of looking over their shoulder, wondering uh, what other people are doing, wondering what other people are saying. And so it, I think it really has very quickly had this societal impact that has put a chill through through much of Hong Kong civil society. And so that's been a really unfortunate side effect of, of, of all of this.
0: Mm. Anthony, just finally, I noted that in the news has been mention of a Hong Kong-Singapore travel bubble Mm -hmm. Um, and, of course, So many of us in the Asia-Pacific region haven't been able to travel up until now, with Australia establishing its own travel bubble with New Zealand just recently. Some people have suggested that may lead to potentially a Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia travel bubble opening up. And I wondered whether you thought there would be discussion or thought of, for some people in Hong Kong needing a holiday or wanting to move, whether that's something that may even be in anyone's mind at the moment given what's been happening and the kind of pressure that people might feel that they're under.
1: Yeah, very much. There's been a, um, a, a there's a lot of discussion uh, going on in Hong Kong at the moment around, you know, do we stay or go? Um, and that's one of the most common conversations that, that, that you have at the moment. Um, that conversation has been largely directed sort of in connection with the UK because the UK have um, what's called a, a British national overseas status that they granted to uh, Hong Kong citizens at the time of the handover. And they are now allowing those BNO citizens a path to residency and citizenship, ultimately in the UK. So that's a, that's a path that, that's very um, easy to take for a lot of people, and I know many people who are who are either have already taken up that that option or are, or are considering doing it. Australia is a bit trickier because I think Australia, while they the Australian government has said they welcome um, immigration applications from Hong Kong, and I think will favourably consider, in particular, skilled migrant applications, they don't have the same sort of easy path that that, that, that sort of anyone can stroll in the door. But certainly, Australia is a, is a very popular Destination And already um, one of the most notable exiles from Hong Kong, Ted Hui, who is a, a former pro-democracy politician here, um, now a wanted man in Hong Kong under the national security law. Um, uh, he is now residing in Australia, and I think the, the Australian government facilitated him uh, getting to Australia, notwithstanding the various COVID restrictions. And so I think certainly mm-hmm. um, there is going to be, there's always been a, 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 a large Hong Kong community in, in, in Australia, and I, and I think that Australia will continue to be a place that um, is attractive for people who, for various reasons, feel that um, Hong Kong is, is no longer a place they want to live and I think in particular raise their, raise their families.
0: Mm. Anthony, just finally, looking to the future, I know it's kind of hard to crystal ball gaze, but given that so many things have happened and developed that perhaps were unexpected in the sense that you thought it surely wouldn't go that mm. far, do we have any indication of how much further things will progress
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it certainly doesn't feel like it's going to stop. I mean, I, I feel like Beijing is now quite determined to bring Hong Kong to heel and make Hong Kong the kind of place that they wanted to be in their image, which is you know, certainly still continuing to be a free market in terms of, of money, in terms of business and, and, and finance and capitalism and all those things, but not to be a free market of ideas and not to be a place where people can openly criticise the Chinese government, criticise the Communist Party, engage in any kind of activities that, that China feels undermines its interests. And I don't think that Going to stop with this crackdown, with these attacks on, on the free press and the education system and civil society, um, until that goal has been achieved. And I think that um, you know may be a, a very long time before that kind of complete social revolution in Hong Kong occurs. And I think we're going to just have to brace ourselves for for more in the meantime.
0: Anthony, it's just been really illuminating speaking with you and hearing about all of this. And uh, obviously, it's something that we'll have to keep an eye on from here in Australia and continue to cover and talk about with you. So, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your really valuable insights today. You're welcome.
1: It's always a a pleasure to chat.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the wonderful Associate Professor Monica Bell. Now, you should know that she covers a range of areas in academia and knowledge, including being an associate professor in sociology, as well as an associate professor in law at Yale University. And she does some really wonderful research and thinking and commentary around policing, around racial justice, around racial segregation. There's so many elements to Monica's expertise, so I'm really, really pleased to be speaking with Monica in particular today about some really, really vital issues that no doubt you would have seen in the headlines over a number of months, of course, because uh, we do know here in Australia as it did make news around the world, the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020, where we saw Derek Chauvin, one of the four police officers from Minneapolis Police Department, who were involved in the arrest of George Floyd on that day. They arrested him because they suspected he may, it was alleged, be using a counterfeit bill at Cup Foods, which is a a kind of corner store. That has never been shown to be the case. Then we saw the video that was taken by bystanders. George Floyd was initially approached by police. He had a gun pointed at him through his car window. He was startled and frightened by that situation. He was taken out of his car. They were seeking to make this arrest to place him in a police car. He had claustrophobia, said he was anxious, was verbalizing these concerns with them. He was ending up, we saw later in the video, being forced onto the ground in the prone position with his hands behind his back, having Derek Chauvin's knee placed at the back of his neck and then proceeding to do that for such a long time And then he eventually, after protesting, telling them he couldn't breathe so many times, that he was happy to comply with police, he still was being held unnecessarily with all this force and pressure on his back, as we saw during the trial that has just been playing out. And then we saw that he did lose consciousness that a police officer noticed he didn't have a pulse and that CPR wasn't started at any point until the ambulance arrived, in which case they had to basically very commandingly force Derek Chauvin to actually remove his knee and to start um, the chest compressions themselves. So this was a very shocking and extreme and public And violent act that the whole world saw So I just wanted to give that uh, backdrop If people hadn't seen that video Or um, hadn't seen it since last May We're going to talk about the murder of George Floyd Deaths by police in America Against black and brown people And uh, unnecessary police violence and police force And the issues of racial justice in America And so this is where I welcome Monica to the program To talk about all of these issues With her fantastic insight Hi there, Monica, and thank you so much for joining us from Connecticut, USA. Hi, Amy. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's my real pleasure, and I've got to say I really appreciated all all of your thoughts and insights around the murder of George Floyd. But as we know, and as you have pointed out among so many others, this isn't an isolated incident. It is an extreme form of violence, but there is, I guess, a spectrum of violence that police enact against black and brown Americans on a daily basis. And certainly some of these incidents do make Global news, and of course, then we are aware of that here in Australia. And Australians have their own issues in terms of Australia's First Nations people and deaths in police custody here. So, I wanted to get a sense from you, first of all. You're living in America, you're across all of the contemporary discussions around police brutality and police violence and using George Floyd's murder as an example and as a prism for that. What have been some of the conversations in America at the moment that you think have been new or maybe not new, but have been a step forward in some sense on these issues?
2: Yeah. So, so thank you so much for that question. And, you know, I think there are at least three big changes um, that have happened in the American conversation about policing since the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd in May 2020. So the first of those big changes is that because of the protests, I mean, and I understand that you also had um, lots of protests in Australia. Um, because of the protests in uh, the U.S., there was um, more questioning of the role of police in society than I've ever had before. This is to say, usually when an issue with policing comes up, the baseline assumption is that, well, police, we need police because they make us safe. And so the question is how to reform our current system. And so one of the big changes, the first, is that people have now been questioning and not just you know black people and brown people who live in marginalized communities, but even white people in America have started to question whether police actually make communities more safe. People are drawing a distinction now between more policing and more safety. So that's a, been a big change in just the national conversation. Um, the other big change is The big call from movements uh, for the past year has been to defund the police. So to cut local police budgets, to have less policing and to invest that money in other sorts of resources. So to invest that money in the social welfare system or in uh, community groups that are doing work that make communities safer without having guns, which our police carry, or, the the prison system. And that conversation is new. That's a really a brand new national conversation. And then the third is is related to that, which is, you know, people have been talking about the abolition of police and prisons for decades in America, but only a small number of people, inspired by the work of of scholars like Angela Davis. And of course, long before that, W.E.B. Du Bois writing about an abolition democracy. So a place like a, a democratic organization that is about abolishing the institutions that produce racial injustice in society. And so more recently, there has been a national understanding of ideas of prison and police abolition that are held in large public conversations. Like I just spent six hours earlier today in a public conversation with a bunch of white people and police leaders and prison leaders where we, had, we talked all day about abolition. And wow. that is a radical change from uh, police reform conversations before the death of George
0: Floyd. That's amazing. I'm just wondering, what are some of the responses of people to those discussions? Because, I mean, you mentioned they're defunding the police and, of course, there's either defunding them completely or partially, and then redirecting funds elsewhere, as you say, to other more complementary and far more positive modes of community welfare and well-being. And then there's also, of course, abolishing the police. I wonder what are some of the responses to those types of proposals? Because they seem like not everyone may agree, I guess, on what (laughs) might be the way forward.
2: Right. Yeah. So, so not everyone agrees with uh, <laughs> defunding or abolition, for sure. Uh, so really, um, when I talked about the conversation changing, mm-hmm. that's really what I meant. Um, the movements have changed the conversation, but that doesn't mean that policies have done exactly what the the implications of of the movement actions have been. But but movements have changed the politics. So let me be a little bit more specific about what I mean there. So after defund the police became the slogan of Black Lives Matter in uh, the summer of 2020, After that happened, um, a bunch of localities kind of took an approach where they weren't going to actually cut police funding, um, or or maybe they would cut police funding slightly. But instead of doing that part of the call, they did start investing in other resources beyond the police. So, for example, in San Francisco and in New York City uh, and in Denver, Colorado, the uh, city has created alternative response units. So for people who are in some kind of mental health crisis or some other sort of crisis that doesn't really require a police response, and the city has invested money, and instead of sending police to those calls, um, they would send mental health workers, social workers, people who aren't the police for emergency response. Now, activists have been trying to get that for years only after the call, the, the, the demand became even more radical than that, did cities start actually taking up the project of investing in alternatives to traditional policing. So similarly, uh, we see that with respect to investments in social welfare, investments in community organizations um, where cities aren't doing defunding and they're not doing abolition, um, but they are Making more radical investments than they were willing to do before. So what used mm-hmm. to be the far left has now become the center. And that change has been really important. But but you actually asked about how these are re- received, these calls are received, and I want to say a little bit more about that. So the value of the slogan defund the police, or in the value of calling for a police abolition. Does not seem to be to appeal to the the masses, right? So you know the polling on defund the police is, is quite bad, even among Black people. By the way, most Black Americans don't want the police to end. Um, you know, even if that's kind of the you, you know even if I, you know just to be transparent, that's the political view I take. It's not a majoritarian sort of view. And in fact, uh, after the 2020 election, uh, some uh, kind of liberal Democrats in the US uh, claimed that some uh, US House of Representatives seats, which those, you know, they serve for two years in the Congress, um, uh, two year terms. And uh, there were some claims that many Democrats lost their elections in places that are kind of mixed in the in, in the sense of you know either a Republican or a Democrat might win. Uh, there's a claim that they lost those seats because of defund the police, because um, Republicans were able to paint Democrats as being police abolitionists, and that was really scary to people. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm not sure if the data totally align with that view of what happened in the election, But it is fair to say that this is not a majoritarian view. The real political value of it is that in policy rooms, it entirely changes what's possible. And it also motivates people who have been left out of politics
0: um, to, to get more involved. It makes a lot of sense to me in the sense that having worked in areas like gender equality and you see Changes are so incremental a lot of the time that these shifts in conversation do eventually shift policy in a gradual sense. And as you were saying there about at least redirecting funds or even increasing funds and placing them into other programs that are better in the sense of having better outcomes for black and brown Americans, I mean, that is progress. And I wonder whether you think that that is a signal that there is more room to keep pushing the conversation along, given that what was deemed, as you say, far left or quite radical an idea like defunding the police, whether that now means that there's more scope to continue pushing out the boundaries? So, yes, I absolutely do think, you know, like it's still true that defund and abolition...
2: But, but I'm focusing on defund really as a, as a piece of a larger abolition puzzle. But there's so much more work that terminology can do. And so we've actually started to see cities in the United States, some of them wanted to cut police funding. So I'm thinking here, uh, Seattle, Washington um, is, an, is a good example of this. The um, city voted to cut police funding quite drastically. And the police, and first, and so they have a a, a charter commission that, that pushed that back. And also what I really wanted to elevate is that the police union, so there are, you know, unions of police officers, public sector unions across the nation, they vary a bit state by state with state rules. But um, the, the key thing is that there are powerful police unions that are fighting even minimal cuts to police funding. And there has been a, a deep conversation actually about whether police unions should count, like whether um, national union organizations should include police unions in their group because police unions are fundamentally different from other sorts of labor unions. And you know, I elevate this to raise, there's a lot of room now even being had about the the entire landscape of political actors because of the call to defund is so powerful. And the other thing I'll mention too is that, so in the United States, um, recently, the United States House of Representatives passed out of committee um, for the first time this bill called H.R. 40, which is a bill that commits to study reparations for the enslavement of Black Americans historically. Now, this bill um, has been introduced in every session of Congress for, I think, the past nearly 40 years. I could have the the precise numbers wrong, but between 30 and 40 years, um, this piece of legislation was, uh, uh, was brought to the fore, was introduced but it's, it's never gotten out of committee until this year. And, you know, it's, it's not going to pass, right? It's not going to mm-hmm. pass this year. But the point is that the, the conversation about defund has meant that we are now having uh, debates about like more generally about funding and racial justice in America, like linking funding and racial justice and the defund and reparations conversations fit together quite well and feed off of each other. And so that whole politics, a whole like radical politics of racial justice is space that has been opened up by defund. And that's where I think that's part of where this whole conversation is going.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing in the sense that it has those broader implications for racial justice and the historical implications that you just mentioned there and the history of the United States and black slavery in the United States and that legacy that's ongoing in terms of the racial inequality and also ongoing racism and segregation in society. It seems like all of those issues are a continual thing that people are confronted by on a daily basis and in one of those senses it's expressed in policing but also of course it's expressed in other fora and I was reminded of your thoughts I think it was you were talking about this concept of uh, racism that you have in, in sociology and how it's really something that you say racism is a collective cultural phenomenon ground into our structures and institutions, but also our ideas. The tests of racism are often psychological, but actually racism's daily occurrences are sociological, not just psychological. And you go on to talk about what that really means and how basically It's not just about an individual person being racist, but drawing on a whole set of scripts and tools around racism that's uh, been ingrained into the culture. I wondered if you might be able to share more of your perspective around that with us, for those of us who um, perhaps aren't familiar with that way of conceiving of racism and and its all-encompassing way that it operates throughout society.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, sure. I'm, I'm totally happy to talk about that. So I think you know, and just to to bring this down to a granular level, mm. because I work so much on policing, you know. So uh, one of the things that comes up all the time in conversations with, uh, like about policing and about abolition and all of these things as well, you know. But you, some officers are good people, right? You know, <laughs> this is not about. Indivi- it's just like, yes, I mean, I know police officers who are fine people and who are not individually racist, but that doesn't mean that ideas about suspicious behavior that like that, that officer might access in a particular time, that those wouldn't sort of sound in racism. And so let me be, um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So you know, just a few minutes, uh, just shortly before the verdict in the Derek Chauvin t- case was announced, police in Columbus, Ohio, shot and killed 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. And uh, Micaiah Bryant had a young black woman, Asha uh, mm. uh She called the police herself because she felt in danger where she was, um, she was in, involved in some fight, like a fight with two other girls. Um, she called the police, the police show up and Micaiah Bryant had uh, a knife and she was kind of like, if you watch the video, it's like they were mm-hmm. fighting. She had a knife, but you know, it was just girls fighting and the police officer, um, when she looked like she was about to cut, um, one of the other girls she was fighting with the police officer shot her and that's how she died. She was shot to death in the street and, and, you know, basically the legal conversation, like there's no conversation like the officer shot her because she was uh, endangering someone else. And that follows law that follows procedure. It's legal. It's perfectly legal. However, after she was shot, the screaming, the wailing of everyone around, even the girls who she was attacking, a, a man off the side was yelling, she's a kid, she's a kid, are you stupid to the mm-hmm. officer? You know, the pain that was elicited through that. But, but the, the officer's decision to shoot this young girl, I would argue, comes from the perception of the disposability of black Americans, black young girls like that. There was no need to kill her (laughs) because she had a knife actually. And everyone around her knew that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so that's a concrete example of how an act that is perfectly legal, I don't I, like. I, I don't have any reason to believe that that particular officer is racist, but ideas live out there and they, they become frameworks and we act upon them, even if we're not usually those types of people. And we've of course seen that a ton with respect to, um, to white people um, in the US calling the police on black people for a regular routine. So like, um, I'll, I'll tell you the the reason I came up with this idea like that that kind of description of what racism looks like is because of an incident here at Yale University where a white student called um, the police on a black graduate student um, in a dorm in 2018 It became a big story. But interestingly, a, a big part of that story that was left out is that the white Um, student who called the police on this black student unjustly is someone who was involved with police reform herself was someone who considers herself to be anti-racist. And so her whole thing is like, well, you people all know I'm not racist. I work on racial justice. And, And so my response to that is it doesn't matter whether you're racist. In that moment, you saw a black person um, and the frame that was available to you was one of danger. It doesn't, it's not about everything else you do, because even people who work for racial justice are subject to the same sorts of frames. So yeah, I'll stop there, but I hope that makes sense.
0: <laughs> Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Yeah, thank you for those examples. Looking at it more broadly and even looking at the George Floyd murder and situation that led to that murder, there have been so many conversations about the fact that there seems to be examples where there's a jump to conclusions because of this frame that you're talking about here that everyone's operating under that means that black and brown people are treated with more suspicion that means that they are expected to respond in a violent way when for example george floyd was not responding in a violent way and in fact was very polite and complying and very deferential really for the most part in terms of how he was interacting with police that example certainly shocks a lot of people. But this is something which I wanted to understand from your perspective, given your focus on policing and this background kind of frame and cultural environment that we're all operating in. But in terms of these ideas about de-escalating, not jumping straight away to a lethal use of force, um, these kind of situations where we do see, and I just wanted to remind those listening that black and brown people are more likely to be killed by police in their interactions with police than a white person. So I guess I just wanted to get your sense of what police responses are in terms of realising that there might be other ways of approaching someone if they're anxious, like George Floyd was, if it was only about a really minor potential crime, but, you know, that's not even proven. Uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around those issues that people have raised, that it seems to be that we're over-criminalizing um, situations. And I, I, yeah, I just wanted to get your sense of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, are we over-criminalizing situations? Absolutely. Um, there should not have been a police response at all, in my opinion, to an alleged counterfeit $20 bill bill. Um, There was no harm that was going to be um, addressed by having police respond. And then also multiple police respond, Mm. uh, you know, and um, what's critical here is like, sure, it may be fair for um, counterfeit money to be a crime, to be part of uh, the American criminal law, but not every crime Actually receives a police response. We have a huge criminal code um, throughout our states, and we also have a growing federal criminal code. Actually, even though most uh, in the United States, most criminal law is state law. So that's one problem that is is deeply structural. Um, this came up actually. Was a big part of the conversation in uh, 2014, in 2015, uh, when Eric Garner was killed um, in New York City. The whole idea that he was killed um, for selling loose cigarettes, which is true, Um, that is a, a crime in New York, uh, and that was the reason the officer engaged with him because he was selling Lucy's, um, loose cigarettes and um, then he died. And, and so we still have to do a lot more work, I think, um, to, to deal with the broad scope of our criminal law, but there have been movements to, uh, and, and not just movements, but policy change around what police will respond to or what, what actually uh, gets police response. So, so, so that's one sort of piece of that conversation. Um, the broader piece of your of your question about how police are responding to movements to de-escalate or arguments for de-escalation training and whatnot, there has been good response throughout localities and police departments to say, okay, well, maybe we should have de-escalation training. Um, many police departments already had de-escalation training, but the, the issue is that these racist frames of dangerousness interfere with officers' judgments about when it is appropriate to focus on de-escalation. So so Michael Sierra Aravello, who's a a sociologist at the University of Texas, Austin, has some really fascinating work about police and their sense of dangerousness. Basically, one of the reasons de-escalation training will never work in terms of ending uh, unjust killings of Black and brown people in America is because police think they are in danger all the time, even, you know, and, and this is this is whole idea like, well, policing is risky work. And so they have to make sure they come home at the end of the day. You know, most of policing is not that dangerous actually, um, which is a, is, is a somewhat controversial but but well-supported thing to say. Like most of what police do every day is not that risky. However, because there's such a frame or an idea or norm in policing that they're constantly in danger when they encounter someone who is black or brown in certain communities who also, you know, let's be intersectional, let's think about, you know, who is a, like George Floyd, perceived to be a large man who is on something, as Derek Chauvin said. It's like you don't have a chance to like, there's mm-hmm. no chance to deescalate because the assumption is that person's dangerous. And so I think police are responding as well as a policy matter, but as a matter of actual change in the day to day and on the street, I'm not so sure.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point because it reminds me during the trial, watching it online, they were going through, you know, the training that each officer goes through, including Derek Chauvin and the other police officers who also would have had similar training. And of course, there is plenty of yearly training and retraining and reminding of all of the policies and um, the ways that you need to interact with people, what is um, an appropriate use of force, what is not, how to restrain someone in a way that's safe uh, so that they can then train other police officers to make sure that they're doing it appropriately. So even watching that through um, and the prosecution obviously making the point that you can have all of this training, but then in the moment, to not use it or to ignore it and to ignore bystanders as well, of course, calling out and saying things and ignore off-duty firefighters who offer to provide assistance and want to provide assistance. I I wanted to pick up on some of the things you were just saying and bringing it back to some of the original thoughts you had because the trial brought it up in the closing statements around uh, George Floyd from the prosecution. They were saying, this isn't policing. We're not anti-police in a sense. Mm-hmm. We, want, we want people to follow their training. You know, the police are meant to be there to do the right thing to make us feel safe. And so this whole case is not about being anti-police. It's about being pro-police doing the right thing and making the s- society safe. So I guess the legal system itself is reinforcing this assumption still.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, so the American legal system defers to police arguments about what needs to happen to, be, to, to, to create safety. So our Supreme Court doctrine is really built um, on the idea that uh, police have a lot of power to, to engage in a lot of behavior that, that turns out to be racist. So there's this case, it's um, really the, the, the basic um, case around kind of allowing police to, to stop people essentially for no reason, um, Terry versus Ohio, um, which uh, was decided in 1968. Uh, and that case, uh, along with so many others, Really reinforces the idea that the police officer as a has a special sort of mind. They can figure out when a when a situation is dangerous, when someone looks funny, and that can really not totally on its own, but essentially on its own, be a reason to stop and search someone. Um, and there, there there are just few few boundaries on on that. Beyond that, the case itself. So that one of the things I've been Somewhat concerned about is a lot of the media commentary after the Derek Chauvin verdict was saying this is the first step in you know totally reimagining police and you know the movement is gonna win. This case, as you were, as you were just mentioning, is not about the police really. This case is about one of the most extreme and most public caught on video acts of brutality that we have seen in American history, right? So this is um, really a unique moment, is very rare and it will continue to be rare to get a criminal conviction for murder um, for a police officer. And one of the reasons uh, for that is Um, that our legal system is set up so you know you don't want like as a theoretical matter like if you're concerned with having police uh behave you know you want police to act you want police to get involved in situations in order to keep people safe you don't want them to be subject to criminal conviction or to to civil liability so having to pay damages for getting involved in cases and so we have a doctrine that's created by courts qualified immunity um, that that keeps officers from being held liable in civil cases but also we have presumptions in the criminal law that, that that keep police officers from being held criminally liable so what is all this to say? Um, the nine minutes and 29 seconds that Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck is the only thing the case was about. It wasn't about many of the things we talked about before. It wasn't about over It wasn't about how many officers responded. It wasn't about the fact that a gun was pulled on George Floyd for absolutely no reason um, when he was pulled over. It, it wasn't about anything other than those nine minutes and 29 seconds. And so one of the things I think is really just important to keep in mind is that the the work, the movement, everything that needs to go forward, the, the deep policy change and the political change has to be reducing the role of that sort of aggressive policing in our society altogether. Um, and that can happen in a lot of ways, right? So I'm actually an advocate of disarming the police. It's like, you know, there are places in the world where police officers are not armed all the time um, uh, and or they have might have a combination of armed police officers and, and not armed police officers, for example. That would save a lot of lives. You know, I'm an advocate for reducing the size of our police forces in, in certain cities where they are overgrown at, at the very least. Um, and really, just pushing toward a world where we don't need police and prisons. And what does that mean? Does that mean like all the prisons and all the police are going to go away tomorrow, or should go away tomorrow? Absolutely not. But building toward that world, meaning investing in, as we were, as we started the conversation, investing in interventions that make communities more safe. We know from buckets of of sociological research um, and criminological research that people commit acts of violence and other crimes, often out of necessity or perceived necessity, out of environments that have been disinvested. So like where people don't have work don't have access to education, don't have all the resources that build safe communities. And we can reorient that. You know? so, so anyway, these are some of the um, uh, proposals and ideas that come out of a commitment to public safety as opposed to just policing on its own.
0: Mm. It makes me think that one of the other things to come out of this trial, at least something that I noticed, um, and I obviously haven't watched every kind of trial, um, so I couldn't make those comparisons. Maybe you could share with us your thoughts. But... um, with George Floyd, and given that he has become um, visibly recognizable, um and you know murals have been painted of his face, and you know he has a presence, I guess, in many places and in, in people's minds. And we've seen from this case a humanization of, George Floyd he was an individual human um, a black American he was a, a leader in his community as his brother said his younger brother said in his testimony he was someone who people looked up to and went to church because he went to church he looked out for his you know his friends and siblings when they were young uh, cooking for them or making them lunch when they went to school making sure they had their school clothes the, the way that people spoke of him, and who he was as a person, making it absolutely abundantly clear that his life mattered, like we all know. It just seemed like something, I don't think it's something that was new, but it really was very overt watching and hearing about who George Floyd was. This is not just his story, but of course there's Breonna Taylor, there's Micaiah Bryant that you were talking about, there's also Dante Wright, who recently was also shot, so I just wanted to get a sense from you as well in terms of the role that media or public discourse might have to play about the way that we talk about black lives and black people and black and brown people in America.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a really great question and it's something you know, I've been reflecting on a lot also as a scholar who writes about Black people. Um, you know, it's different from the media, but I think there, is, there are some uh, interesting similarities. So, you know, I think the humanization, uh, for lack of a better word, story um, for George Floyd throughout the trial was, was critical and valuable. And, and, and I think, like, I, I remember seeing shortly after George Floyd died when the video um was circulating Uh, an old friend of mine was just commenting oh you know he was calling out for his mother and when he called out for his mother it wasn't any of these facts about his life that you were talking about that came up Mm. in the trial but even just the humanization it's like oh remembering that this is someone who had a mother that 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 the deep dehumanization of black people uh globally um actually uh, especially but also so also including in america that dehumanization is so deep that simply remembering that a black person has a mother matters a lot to people so i think media can have a really important role to play in telling stories about black people including black people who are suspects or who are criminal defendants or or, or like Telling more about their humanity, not just saying a Black man or whatever, um, and not just focusing on what's, what's troubling about them. I will say one thing that I really appreciated in the kind of humanization story of George Floyd is that you know and this is of course by legal necessity they didn't shy away from the fact that he is someone who um, had a drug addiction and who who struggled with using drugs but that was contextualized you know his his former girlfriend uh, testified in the trial and and told stories about him that really even humanized addiction addiction which Mm -hmm. has been hard historically um, especially for Black people in the U.S. uh, given the crack epidemic so to speak in the 1980s and 1990s no one was telling humanizing stories about people who use drugs and I think the opioid crisis um, in the U.S. which um, has, has taken in more white people and is a much more recent episode of of widespread uh, drug use and drug addiction has ch- even changed those sorts of politics. So and I, I guess the concern I do have about the role of media and these humanizing Black stories is that, you know, as you were alluding to earlier, George Floyd didn't do anything wrong in his interactions with police. To the extent he was doing anything that appeared to be resisting, it was out of deep anxiety and terror he didn't resist at all. Now, but but just because someone resists being arrested for no reason, they shouldn't die, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I, I guess, you know, I think about Michael Brown, uh, you know, Ferguson in 2014, and how the New York Times ran a story which with the headline, he was no angel, and proceeded to, to talk about how Michael Brown struggled to graduate from high school, but he did. And there's like very, I I don't know, things that they viewed as not being angelic. And it's like, that's not important. (laughs) You know, like you shouldn't have to be a perfect Black person in order to not be killed by the police. And one thing I guess I worry about, Black people's trauma and Black people's um, experiences shouldn't have to be fodder in order for white people to see them as human, Mm -hmm. and I suppose, like, maybe this is a necessary, um, it was, maybe it's necessary right now given the depth of Black dehumanization, but um, that's not the promised land. Like, the promised land is we are not uh, subject to to this sort of violence, regardless of whether we have behaved perfectly.
0: yeah, you hit the nail on the head, looking back even in history with you know the Holocaust, for example, having to humanize Jewish people when they were dehumanized by the state in Nazi Germany as an example, mm-hmm. um, different but still very much on the same lines of people who have been uh, dehumanised because of their racial status over centuries, we end up at this point now where we're almost um, grateful that they seem human, which is ridiculous Mm -hmm. Uh, and just, I guess, gobsmacking. Yeah. So you really just pointed it out so well. Um, It is really dire and I guess that you say that's not the promised land. Well, maybe I should ask you, what is the promised land in your mind, given that you've said Mm -hmm. what you've been advocating for what are some of the things that you think we need to focus on as being the ultimate goal here? Yeah. Yeah. So
2: that's a great question. And I want to, I want to be clear. So I'm going to tell you what my big goal is understanding that my, my goal is never going to happen. <laughs> right. So, like, like, yeah. But I think it's really important for us to um, as people who want to see change to know what we're working towards. I mean, you know, like, mm. I think, that, I think about this actually sometimes in religious terms, like, right? so there's this, like, you know, I mentioned the term, the promised land. It's like, well, the promised land is a conception from the Bible. Um, and it's about, you know, arriving at a place, ultimately, but not everyone can get there. And you don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but you still have to build toward it, have to work toward it. And so my sort of big goal like the thing I'll, I have out in front of me is a world where there is true racial justice and liberation for black and brown people there is and so and so people can choose whatever type of life they want to live people can pursue joy in any way and the state doesn't stand in the way of that we don't have a, a carceral system, we don't have a penal system where we just throw people away forever and that doesn't exist and we don't need it because we don't have systems of inequality and, uh, and oppression that create violent people, right? So like, yeah. um, so, so like that's the big goal, a, a, a harmonious world where people have maximal freedom and maximal community um so that world is um (laughs) is, is, is utopian so so what are the steps um so for me massive investment in um the ways people relate to each other so so for me that actually means community groups and especially community groups that are led by black and brown people that are interested in improving their communities giving funding to those groups, helping them do research so they can track their progress. And you know, we're talking about policing and you're probably like, what does that have to do with policing? <laughs> the, the goal is that those sorts of groups um, ultimately help take over the work that police think they're supposed to be doing. Because right now in the US especially, but I, I don't think this is uh, unique to the US, but in the US, so our police departments, our policies, put more police in black and brown communities, especially in cities and urban areas in order to, you know, watch over the community. Uh, you have police officers. I actually um, was talking to someone the other day who was like, Oh, I'm trying to run a program where we give police officers money and they can give it to, they can like buy someone a coffee or like, you know, help, help, um, Uh, help someone get into a homeless shelter and it's like well why is it the police role to do that we should have alternative systems for that like you know we should have enough shelter workers and social workers that we don't rely on police for that so this idea this proposal is to actually invest in resources people out on the street and community groups so we just don't Expect police to do things that that even they say they're not well equipped to do. So police don't want to be social workers, and we should stop asking them to be. Um, So 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 that's part of the vision. I think also there is a um, a federal government vision here that's really important. So um, I think uh, our uh, national government, and so and so, I guess just also maybe this is helpful for context. United States has eighteen thousand plus police departments. And they're mostly locally run. So that means cities, counties, universities, my university has um, a police department that students are advocating to to abolish. All these are run locally. So the federal government has a quite minimal role in the actual policies of police departments. That can and should change so police departments can have national standards uh there can be uh i mean there congress is considering laws right now to have national standards around um de-escalation training around um body cameras and these are solutions that i am not uh ex- as excited about <laughs> in the sense that like i think they just kind of like maintain the status quo however while we have police, we should have better standards for them. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, these are you know, um, that's just a few things, but there are many um, and like I hope you get a sense of my like general orientation around what the solutions look like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really am so grateful, Monica, for what you've been sharing with us today and your really fascinating insights and all the great work that you're doing in this area, not just academically, of course, but as you have mentioned in this conversation, working with community groups directly in this whole area of police reform, questions of criminality even, and also racial justice and police violence. So um, I know I could ask you a lot of other questions, but um, we'll leave it. There for now, and um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a fun conversation. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to
1: find out how.
0: And I know that my next guest will be very, very popular. Um, with you given that we had him on the show in 2017 uh, at the beginning of the life of this show and his name is Dr Jack Pascoe. Uh, Jack is a UN man, he's also a conservation and research manager at the Conservation Ecology Centre in Cape Otway. And I'm going to be chatting with Jack uh, right now about his essay, which features in Animals Make Us Human. Um, It's a really wonderful book that's been edited and put together and features a number of um, scientists, ecologists, writers, uh, photographers, all kinds of people from all walks of life who are passionate about animals and the environment and jack has written an essay called living for country what else is there to live for and uh, i welcome jack now thank you jack for coming back onto the program and chatting with us once again
3: thanks for having me back amy
0: Oh, it's a real pleasure. And I know that so many people were interested in what you had to say last time. And I think we'll pick up on some of the themes from last time um, towards the end of this conversation. But I wanted to start from the point of your essay in Animals Make Us Human. Um, I was really, really struck by your essay um, because of your connection to country particularly the fact the opening line i guess is illuminating in the sense that you say i was born in carlton but i was grown on cape otway and you talk about these formative um, years in your life where you're out camping Uh, but you then also go to talk about the colonial history of Cape Otway and um, how Cape Otway came to be named. I just wonder, could you share with us that um, naming history and what Cape Otway's actual name
3: is? Yeah, so um, I guess the name Cape Otway comes from a... Um, someone in the Royal Navy who, who never managed to, to reach uh, the continent. So um, a bit of an awkward name, really, for a, a bit of country with, a, with an old history of, of people living here. So um, I guess i pointed that out. It, it just seems strange all across Australia that there are so many places named after people who with a real uh, minor connection, um, connection to this place. Um, it's real name, and, and this is a bit of research that um, really my father did when he was working um, on Aboriginal languages um, some decades ago, um, uh, we, to the best of our knowledge, um, the, the name for Cape Otway is, is bangrak or Bhangra, um, and it, it refers to the, the shape of the dunes on Cape Otway. Um, it it uh, basically translates to uh, a knee of, of sand, um, which if you ever, you know, it's a lovely way of describing sand dunes. Uh, the, the the dunes of sand uh, of Cape Otway are, are stabilised um, sand dunes that have been uh, created in that shape by the, the action of um, of wind over a long period of time and stabilised by, by the woodlands. But um, a much nicer name, I think, than Cape Otway. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it should be changed. <laughs>
3: Yeah, look, it would be nice, but then uh, no one would know where they were going to. But um, I, I agree with you, Amy. It would be nice to see more acknowledgement. I, I think keeping in mind that um, this bit of bit of country that that I still live on and, and work on on Cape Otway had a pretty um, intense um, uh, first contact period, and, and there are very few people to to probably verify some of the. The, the language words that we know for the area which which is a sad thing and um i yeah. guess it just uh it just goes to that that hard history that the place has had
0: Mm, well, that's exactly it and you go on to describe that in the second page of this essay when you were talking about um, the settler conflict and violence against Aboriginal First Nations people and, in particular, the Gadabhanud, um and how, essentially, as you say, we don't have access necessarily to much of their knowledge and particular language because of the conflict and the violence inflicted upon them.
3: Yeah, that's right, Amy. So I guess we have to rely on, on the, the, the little bits of information that have been um, retained in, in settler journals and, um, and accumulation of, of, of language words in, in lists um, and uh, make some assumptions based on um, the neighbouring tribes for whom there is more law has been retained. So the Gadabanud were one of the, the five uh, Ma tribes that are now sort of represented by the, by the eastern Mar in southwest of Victoria. And so we, we have to try and, um, I guess, see this bit of country through the, the fragments we have remaining and, and those uh, cultures that are strong um, uh, in the neighbouring country. Mm.
0: I When I was doing a little bit of research into them um, to try and see what had been discussed about their practices and um, how they lived on the land. It seems like some of those settler diaries and um, the, I guess, what we would as a historian term a primary document, um, have varying levels of reliability and certainly do have um, white racist attitudes embedded within them because of the time, of course. Um, some A lot of that hasn't changed even today. Um, but some of it was, it seems perhaps people have misunderstood a lot of the time how uh, Aboriginal people have organised themselves um, within their tribe and, you know, their hunting practices, for example?
3: Yeah, but I, I don't think that's uncommon across Australia. You know, we have to mm. take a lot of those written primary records um, with the understanding that uh, it was a different mindset that the colonial people had. Um, and, and we have to try and understand those practices that are talked about with that in mind. Mm. And it, it is a bit of a challenge. But often I think um, we can look at, say, the descriptions of a landscape, which um, often were described quite accurately, to get a bit of an understanding of what the landscape looked like. And from there, we can really understand or or start to make some assumptions and and best guesses about what land management practices were um, and, and work our way back from there.
0: Mm. I really found interesting that story um, you recount about the Kolak area, um, told by your friend uh, Kira Wurong, Kira Wurong, uh, Lawman John Clark, and the, how Indigenous Australians related to their country. And I wondered if you could share with us that that story.
3: Yeah, so John tells a story about um, a Gurujin man who. Um, Uh, I guess when when encountering some white settlers says, um, you know, basically says uh, Kolak Nyat, which the settlers assume is the name for his his tribe. But in fact, he is saying um, "This, this country is mine. And I guess we immediately... Our minds immediately go to ownership, but that's not really how it translates. And and, and this is pretty common for Aboriginal people. But um, our relationship with with country and, <clears throat> and Mother Earth is really a kinship um, relationship. And and so uh, when we talk about our country or belonging to, it's really belonging to the family of uh, with that tribe will belong, and, and and that bit of country will be part of their part of their story, but but also really part of their kinship. Um, so it, it is a different way of seeing um, uh, custodianship of country, as opposed to ownership, or it's more around responsibility to to that family member, really. And and um, it, it's really why I refer to country and and, and Mother Earth as, as being part of part of our kinship.
0: Mm. It makes a, a lot of sense um, what you're saying there, and certainly. One of the beautiful features that you highlight in this essay is the fact that um, the Kolak, sorry, the Cape Otway, uh, Bungarak country area is home to some really phenomenal forests and gums, as well as um, other animals, birds, uh, marsupials, and mammals, for example. And so, um, you know, there are some really beautiful features on country in this particular area. Um, I wonder if you could share with us that personal connection to country um, at at that localised level in terms of what um, you get to observe and be part of and also be custodian of in your work?
3: Yeah, so, look, it's interesting. And and so I spent probably the the formative years of my life on on Cape Otway. Um, Certainly my my first memories are really of, of growing up on Cape Otway. And it's not it's not my traditional country, but it, it certainly seeped into my bones pretty pretty early on, and, and I can't quite shake it. Um, and, and it it was really um, beautiful woodlands that, that I that I grew up in. So um, a closed closed canopy of of, um, of, of white branched manogums with a, a really open understory, lots of grasses, herbs, and and, um, and forbs. Um, and a lot of those were had a traditional use, either as medicine plants, um, weaving plants. Old aunties used to travel a long way to get some of the weaving grasses and sedges on Cape Botway to incorporate into their traditional traditional weaving methods. Um, and many, many um, tuberous species that, that grew in the understory. Um, you could walk anywhere through um, the woodlands of of the of, of my childhood, and. Um, uh, without being impeded um, it, it was pretty spectacular I, 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 and a real privilege to grow up in that landscape interestingly it had been kept open it was a culturally it was kept open as a cultural landscape for for many reasons one of them it needed to be a productive landscape for the for the local mob in, in producing food fiber and medicine um, and uh, it was, you know, in, in almost certainly it was maintained that way when, with diligent use of fire. Um, but uh, it was maintained that, that way by, you know, early settlers and graziers with, with really light grazing of, of, of cows. And, and probably more recently the, the property that I had that grown up on was, was, um, had hay cut on it before we, we bought the property and, and started to live there. Um, and that had kept it open as well. Um, unfortunately, in latter years uh, of, of living there, but um, even more recently than that. So, in the last ten years, uh, Cape Otway has lost a lot of those um, that they, They've uh, they've declined through for a range of reasons, but also the change in land management or land use has has allowed the the coastal shrub species to really encroach on the woodlands, and it's put the the entire woodlands on their hands to be. Largely unrecognisable um, from what they were when I was a child. Mm.
0: What are some of those changes in land management?
3: Yeah, so I guess I was referring to the fact that, um, uh, that they'd been kept open with, with, light, with light grazing of cattle, but also um, the cutting of hay, etc. Previously, So, yeah.
0: Oh, they'd sorry, go ahead. Some,
3: no, that, that's fine. I mean, they been maintained a you know, strict fire regime in all likelihood um, and, and uh, because the grazers weren't, uh, weren't still burning at all, um, the country was allowed to, to scrub up quite heavily and, uh, and, you know, it becomes more and more difficult to burn on private property um, all the time. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just a, a fact. It is more difficult these days to burn on private property. Um but also fewer and fewer people were, were grazing Cape Otway. It was becoming more and more an area for for tourism. And so uh, land holdings were, were being broken up into smaller properties where I guess the land wasn't being managed in, in as strict a way. So it was, was able to, to sort of uh, become a uh, more overgrown. <coughs> Pardon me. No,
0: no. Um, so I, I thought of that... Um interesting point that you make in the essay around the management of the land and that lower lying scrub um, in terms of lighting fires um, in a culturally sensitive, um, ecologically sensitive way and the process um, and your experiences lighting fires as a way to manage the landscape and I would love to hear more about um, your thoughts and experiences with it.
3: Yeah, so in 2013, when we'd really had quite an explosion in koala numbers and subsequently a massive decline, as, as unfortunately the habitat declined to a point where it couldn't support the koalas um, as, as the trees had senesced. Um, in about that time, we were looking for ways to start regenerating the, the canopy because there there, were, there was no next generation of trees to replace those that we'd lost. We started to think about incorporating fire into our, our management regimes, Um uh, and I was by no means a practitioner at that point, so we were looking around uh, using sort of more, I guess, agency-type type fire to um, regenerate some of those trees, activating the, the seed that was in the soil um, to, to get a, a flush of, of young trees come through. Unfortunately, we, we, we did that and we, we had... Um, we engaged with the Country Fire Authority, and I'll be forever ever grateful for the work of some individuals, Locally and regionally to ensure that those first burns started to get back onto the country, um, and uh, unfortunately we didn't have that that flush of of young trees to come back. But we were it did make a, a perfect ash bed in which to plant young tube stock trees. So we collected uh, seed from I guess the remaining uh, manigums on the on the Cape and started to to plant both manigums and, and other local eucalypts to re- replace what we'd lost. Um, I guess that, that method of fire was by no means perfect and uh, it was certainly hotter than, than my elders talk about and, and other elders from around the country would talk about as a, in a traditional sense. So I guess I was learning as much as I could from as many, many sources, both, both um, Indigenous and, um, and non-Indigenous. Um, and uh, we were able to start to incorporate um, some winter-burning, really low-intensity fires through... Uh, some of the country that we we burnt um, earlier on to start um, re-establishing that low-intensity fire regime, in order to manage some of the um, the gains we'd made in reducing the scrub in, in earlier burns, and we're continuing that work now. Just um, it's it's never a for traditional people, and and I think really for ecologists that want to have good success, there's never a, a point where you get to walk away from country. You you need to continue your practice and that's what we're trying to do here
0: yeah well i know that the conservation ecology center uh, annually at least before covid was happening uh, had a big otway tree plant was some of that project and no doubt other projects around replanting trees was that around restoring or um, bringing back to life some of these forests and managums
3: Absolutely. So um, we've been running the big old Way tree plant since 2013 or 2014. I, I can't remember anymore. And we, we had a, a year off because of COVID, but uh, I couldn't tell you now, Amy, how many trees at that, that event has, has planted and we get people, um, you know, come from all over the state to be a part of that event. It's, it's a wonderful feeling and um, I think it's healing for country to have so many people on it looking after it. And, and, and as you say, those trees will be the next generation of, of, of trees on Cape Otway. You know, messmates and... So messmates, stringybarks and managums and and, uh, and casuarina or, or she-oaks that, that grow along the ridges in Cape Otway are, are slowly coming back. It's uh, a slow process. The, the sands of Cape Otway don't grow trees quickly, um, but it, it's certainly happening, and, and hopefully uh, before I kick the can, we'll see nice mature trees again across the sand country of the Cape.
0: Mm, I hope so. I hope it gets back to your childhood um, experiences and visions of those beautiful trees. Um, I did see some photographs from a very long time ago, and it's just so majestic to look at.
3: Yeah, it, yes, it felt like everywhere you walked on the Cape, uh, you were you were basically walking under a big bower of, of, of canopy. It was it was pretty it was pretty spectacular country. Um, And uh, whether or not it's it's in that state when I when I do uh, pass over, um, I I hope that we can we can all hand on heart say it's on its way because uh, as I say, caring for country is is an ongoing thing, and um, in order to get there, these these programs that we've started are going to need to be maintained.
0: And there are a number of um, very charismatic species of animal as well that live in Cape Otway and also birds. Um, And I just absolutely love getting to see the king parrots uh, when they land, you know, at breakfast time and kind of look at you really curiously through the window. Um, It's just always really so beautiful to get to know a lot of the um, flora and fauna in that area. And some of the um, really interesting species that I know uh, the Conservation Ecology Centre seeks to support um, and help to survive are some of those endangered species like uh, the tiger quoll and the long-nosed potteroo. Um, I wonder if you could share with us some of the updates or um developments around conservation of these species that uh, you particular you in particular and others at the centre have been trying to protect
3: yeah I mean, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned king parrots obviously they're an important pe- uh, species for the gadiman so the gadiman means speaking in king parrot tongue um, and like all of the ma, ma nations they're they're basically, their language is named after the, the sound of something. But, um, yeah, an, an important species for this area. And, and I, as you say, grew up watching them on the deck of our our, our property, um, being cheeky fellas. But um, I, I guess some of the work of the Conservation Ecology Centre focuses on on some of those, and particularly mammals. As, as you say, we, we worked a lot with tiger quolls. We're spending a lot more time now working with... Uh, what we call critical weight range mammals. Basically, that refers to the fact that they're really <laughs> likely to go extinct. That's been the, the history of these types of mammals. So we're talking about bandicoots and potoroos. Um, working a lot um, in some of the, the stronghold areas in the Otways for, for potoroos and bandicoots in particular. So one place is the Carlisle Heathland on the, on the western flank of the, of the Otway range, um, on the, the boundary of Gadabudun and Kiriwurrung country looking at how we can protect some of those populations that are, uh, are really important, special places, but also important given um, they're becoming bastions. If you, if you look at the 1920 bushfires, some of these species, um, their range is uh, is probably really under threat from some of the habitat decline. So Otway populations could be really important. As we sort of look into the future of, of climate change, we're, we're expecting some more severe bushfire weather in the Otways, um, and that western flank, which is drier um, in, in the Carlisle heathlands, um, we can expect it to, uh, to burn more frequently, and therefore um, there'll be more fuel reduction burns there in order to mitigate some of that impact. Um, and we know that, you know, whether it's wildfire or planned burns, those medium-sized mammals like the Bandicoots and the Potteroos um, have a fairly rough time um, once the cover's removed from from fire. So. We're really working hard um, on, a, on a number of projects to understand what fire means for those species and how we can do it better and work with the agencies to ensure that we can minimise the impacts on, on some of those really charismatic and important species, um, not, not only just for their own threatened status, but the fact that they have a really important role in distributing fungi around the forest and, and aerating soil and turning it over, so... Um, that, that's a lot of our work's currently um, beyond the sort of restoration on Cape Otway, but we're really focusing in on those uh, vulnerable medium-sized mammals.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, I remember mentioning last time that there is um, even a craft beer that's named after one of these species um, called the Spotted Ale, which you can get from Prickly Moses. And um, I wonder, I think it's still available, because I did see it in a window, like, last year in lockdown um, and uh, 100% of the profits um, was were going to your um, conservation ecology centre in Cape Otway. So um, there's even, I guess, um, they're that charismatic that they can be on a, a beer bottle as well.
3: Yeah, the Tyreek a pretty uh, charismatic fella and, um, yeah, look, I'd encourage you all to drink that beer because it might just keep me in a job, Amy, and it's, that's very <laughs> close to my heart.
0: I think that's um, a challenge everyone here can listen to and take up, I hope. Um, yeah, you can, you still can get it. I, I did get to see that. And um, Jack, one of the other things we talked about last time, and we have just briefly referenced it, was also the status of koalas and I know that in the news uh, more recently after the catastrophic bushfires of 2020, we saw that there were a number of areas that affected koalas and we saw um, some of the harrowing imagery of all kinds of mammals being affected and birds uh, by the fires. I wondered whether um, the status of koalas in Cape Otway is um, different to the status of koalas in other areas. Are they um, as much under threat in Cape Otway as other areas or is it the reverse?
3: Yeah, it's probably a really tricky question to answer in some ways. I think um, it's really important that we acknowledge that in some areas of the country, um, fire and, and climate change and development are significantly reducing the viability of koala populations across the eastern seaboard. Um, I think that's a message that that we need to make very clearly. Um, I I guess the the conversation is not as simple in in areas of of Victoria and South Australia where um, overabundance of koalas in in certain habitat types associated with certain eucalypts. Um, The the story isn't that simple and we we have issues with overabundance. It's it's as much a threat to um, animal welfare as it is to... um, the chance of the persistence of, of koalas in those areas to the point where you know there have been large-scale collapses of, of of koala habitats associated with overabundance. For instance, Cape Otway, and you know those of us that that live in those places at those times and have to witness numerous animals starving to death um, will uh, will never forget it. it. It's not a it's it's not something that anyone wants to see. Um, But, uh, yeah, certainly there are lots of strong populations of koalas across, you know, southern Victoria and into South Australia, often associated with manna also issues of of overabundance of koalas or or abundance of koalas in in bluegum plantations and issues with with animal welfare come harvest time. Um, Those those issues aside, um, I think uh, in all likelihood koalas are relatively secure in the otways, although... Uh, It's an issue that is going to need ongoing management because uh, these animals seem to have the tendency to uh, become overabundant in certain situations. Um, Acknowledging that there is no longer top-down pressure from a hunter, whether that's human or dingo, um, we will need to continue to manage koala numbers in some way so that we don't have these... Devastating, you know, overabundance issues where forests collapse, but also we have these, um, you know, mass welfare issues which I, uh, no one wants to see.
0: Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it's, um, you know, ecosystem-specific, even within Victoria, in terms of how different uh, mammals are affected. And obviously, with the massive fires that we've seen in different parts of Victoria at different times, um, it must uh, bring up different challenges. Um, and I know that, as you said earlier, um, there have been, you know, some significant fires in the Cape Otway area historically. Um One of the interesting developments I saw in the news uh, in February was that the Andrews Labor government here in Victoria is seeking to review the Wildlife Act, um, which was introduced over 45 years ago. And uh, I know that they have appointed you alongside others um, to be part of an independent expert advisory panel. Um, I wondered if you could share with us uh, given your expertise in wildlife biology and also your really strong connection to Bungarack country, um, if you could share with us what kind of um, aims it, that, that panel has in terms of um, reviewing the Wildlife Act and um, what the Wildlife Act is really there to do.
3: Yeah, so I guess one of the the issues with the Wildlife Act, and, and I probably won't go into detail, Amy, but is mm. that um, it, it hasn't been reviewed for such a long time, and it's it, unlikely that there's been a change in people's opinions of how we should be managing wildlife. So we need to understand that a little bit in the in the context. But our um, our major objective is to to see if the objects of the Act are, are still relevant and and need review, um, and, and obviously a particular interest of mine as part of this review is to um, uh, establish whether the rights and interests of traditional owners and Aboriginal Victorians are reflected in the Act um, and, and how uh, those, those groups um, would like to see their rights. Um, reflected in in new legislation so um, yeah a a broader overarching look at at, at the objects is what we're looking for considering it it just hasn't been reviewed for such a long time and looking at how the legislation interacts with other other pieces of of, of legislation including the floor and fauna guarantee etc so um, a big piece of work.
0: Mm. Um, and in this uh, essay, you conclude with um, a really pertinent point, which I wanted to conclude on in this conversation. Um, I'm just going to quote from it. So you say, "quote So for me, a trained wildlife biologist." It's not animals that make me human. It's country that does that because country is everything, including the totems and the people who live on her. And it doesn't make me human so much as it shapes my life and sets out my responsibilities. It gives me my law. And while Bangurak country, Bangarak is not my traditional country, I know I have the responsibility to care for it as it has played so great a role in my creation. Um, I just found that, yeah, really resonant and it just, um, I wanted to understand a little bit more about that connection um, in a bigger picture sense about how personally for you, how it affects you, um, I guess, at a deep level, a cultural level um, and also that human, deeply human level and also how it gives you your law as in L-O-R-E.
3: Well, firstly, now that you've read that sentence out, I think it needs some punctuation, Amy, but um, thanks for that. But, um, uh, look, I, I think, firstly, um, there's an assumption when, when Aboriginal people talk about country that we're talking about ecosystems or, or, or forests or, or something in particular that excludes people. And I think as, as um, European context sort of thinks as, as the landscape, um, particularly natural landscapes in absence of people, but it, it's not that at all. And and for us, uh, people belong to country, and and each bit of country has its own story, its own dreaming or law that that needs to be held by people that understand that piece of country. So uh, and you know, I guess our understanding of each each bit of land across Australia isn't isn't as perfect as it has been for for some areas. Um, we still know a lot of law for country and. And and the responsibilities that um, need to guide its management. And I guess for me, um, this place got into my bones from an, from an early age, and I do feel a responsibility. As I know a lot of Aboriginal people do to care for it, to acknowledge that um, it's not complete without the people and the animals that live on this piece of country, and um, we need to strive to ensure that you know the the mothers, you know, her people are with her at all times. And I don't think that needs to be exclusive to anyone, that um, once you feel a connection to a place, I think it's a responsibility to look after her. And um, I, I certainly hope that, you know, um, black, brindle, white, whatever, um, once you really feel a connection to a place, um, you feel it, but it, that it's on you to make sure that, that she persists in some way and, and um, you can do everything you can to help that piece of country be healthy.
0: Mm. Well, I know that you have just described how you're doing that and no doubt a number of others that uh, you work with in all your various roles, including um, working with local land care as well. Um, and being the chairperson of the Southern Otway Landcare Network. um, Jack, it's just been really wonderful to chat with you, to explore these um, topics more and to hear about your personal story and also um, connection to Bangarrak country, which is, as we've said, very majestic and magical. And uh, if people haven't visited for a while... It's probably a good idea to get down there, and maybe uh, when the big Otway tree plant happens again, that they can get involved in that as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Amy. I better point out that I'm no longer the chair of the Sunlight Landcare Network because I wouldn't want to take away from the wonderful work of the current chair. But absolutely, <laughs> get get down um, this way and uh, and help us out at the Big Otway tree plant. Um, it, it's always good fun. And awesome. Yeah. I guess the challenge to everyone is, uh, you know, when you are out on country and away from the cities and towns, and form that con- connection with a piece of a piece of spirit, a bit, piece of spirit and land, and and learn to understand it and care for it, because it, it's not just on the people who live in in the regions. Um, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do this as an entire society, or we're, mm. we're not going It's not going to work.
0: Thanks so, so much, Jack. I really appreciate that call to action. Cheers, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.